0: Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt sitting here in my home studio in Oxford and joined by my beloved co-host Octavia Bright from London. Hi Octavia, how are you doing today? I'm okay,
1: Carrie. I am a bit flat but I'm okay. You know, it's a heavy time and it's not straightforward figuring out how to navigate, you know, the need and desire for action with this new post-COVID reality which is all about stasis and caution and staying separate. And, you know, if you were listening a couple of weeks ago, you'll know that in light of the murder of George Floyd by police and the ensuing protests around the world, we decided to rerun a show about race with Rennie Edo-Lodge and Kishani Widiaratna. It doesn't feel like that issue or movement is done by any means. And, you know, we hope it's just the beginning of desperately overdue structural change. Today, however, we want to play you the show that we postponed. We recorded it with Carmen Maria Machado a few weeks ago, who we were incredibly excited to talk to. So yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing
0: this show again. How about you, Carrie? How are you? I'm okay. It does feel like a very heavy time. I know what you mean about wanting to take action when the very thing we're being told not to do is take action. Um, And so just try to figure out how to do that. But I am feeling a teensy bit hopeful that this is a time that could lead to real changes if we stay intensely vigilant and keep doing the work, yeah. even when it feels exhausting. So we aren't going to stop thinking about how we can be more anti-racist on this podcast and also in our lives. For now, I'm going to tell you a bit about Carmen Marie Machado, who is the author of the acclaimed short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties, but also the astonishing memoir, In the Dream House* about her experience of domestic abuse in a queer relationship. Inspired by Carmen's book, this month we're also going to be talking about literature that looks at what happens behind closed doors, both in the literal sense, domestic spaces that are not what they seem or hold secrets, but also those books that show us narratives that are usually left out of literature and culture. Octavia, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about Carmen?
1: I sure do. Carmen Maria Machado is the author of Her Body and Other Parties, which I recommended incredibly breathily and intensely on the show a few months ago, and uh, which was a finalist for the National Book Award and the winner of the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize. She is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and is the writer in residence at the University of Pennsylvania
0: in Philadelphia, where she lives with her wife. So today you'll hear our interview with Carmen, we'll talk more generally about how books can explore what goes on behind closed doors, and finally, we will give our usual book recommendations. So let us open your door on literary friction. (laughs) Nice one. (laughs) Thanks. This episode is sponsored by Picador. Picador. We have discussed campaigning books and the growing appetite from readers for nonfiction that seeks to change their minds. But nonfiction writing isn't the only way that authors are making compelling arguments for change. Fiction and poetry can be powerful ways to explore society and understand it better.
1: One such radical voice is Pulitzer Prize winning poet Jericho Brown. His UK debut collection, The New Testament, published in 2018, is a devastating meditation on race and sexuality, in which Brown makes subversive use of Bible stories to address the gay
0: experience from both a personal and a political perspective. The Tradition, his second collection to be published in the UK and for which he won the Pulitzer Prize this year, is a daring collection exploring fatherhood, legacy, blackness, queerness, masculinity, incarceration and police brutality.
1: As Claudia Rankine has said, to read Jericho Brown's poems is to encounter devastating genius. Both the New Testament and the Tradition are available to buy at your local independent bookshop. So get them.
0: Yeah, they sound amazing. They really do. Carmen Maria Machado, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: So we've asked you to start with a reading from In the Dream House. Do you mind setting it up for us?
2: Not at all. I'm going to be reading a chapter called Dreamhouse as Bluebeard. Uh, it's a short chapter, so don't worry. <laughs> and so far in the book, so the memoir is about um, a relationship I had uh, with another woman and the sort of and the domestic abuse that was in the relationship and sort of an analysis and thinking about domestic violence and queer relationships. And things have just been getting pretty bad in the relationship um, when this chapter um, shows up in the book. Dreamhouse as Bluebeard. Bluebeard's greatest lie was that there was only one rule. The newest wife could do anything she wanted anything as long as she didn't do that single arbitrary thing didn't stick that tiny inconsequential key into that tiny inconsequential lock but we all know that was just the beginning a test she failed and lived to tell the tale as i have but even if she'd passed even if she'd listened there would have been some other request a little larger a little stranger And if she'd kept going, kept allowing herself to be trained like a corset fanatic, pinching her waist smaller and smaller, there'd have been a scene where Bluebeard danced around with the rotting corpses of his past wives, clasped in his arms, and the newest wife would have sat there mutely, suppressing growing horror, swallowing the egg of vomit that bobbed behind her breastbone. And then later, another scene in which he did unspeakable things to the bodies, women they'd once been women, and she just stared dead into the middle distance, seeking some mute purgatory where she could live forever. Some scholars believe that Bluebeard's Bluebeard is a symbol of his supernatural nature, easier to accept than being brought to heel by a simple man, but isn't that the joke? He can be simple, and he doesn't have to be a man." Because she hadn't blinked at the key and its conditions. Hadn't paused when he told her her footfalls were too heavy for his liking. Hadn't protested when he fucked her while she wept. Hadn't declined when he suggested she stop speaking. Hadn't said a word when he left bruises on her arms. Hadn't scolded him for speaking to her like she was a dog or a child. Hadn't run screaming down the path from the castle into the nearest village, pleading with someone to help, help, help. It made logical sense that she sat there and watched him spinning around the body of wife number four, its decaying head flopping backward on a hinge of flesh. This is how you are toughened, the newest wife reasoned. This is where the tenacity of love is practiced, its tensile strength, its durability. You are being tested and you are passing the test. Sweet girl, sweet self, look how good you are, look how loyal, look how loved.
0: Thank you. I'm really glad that you chose that chapter to read because, well, I I really liked that chapter, first of all, but I think it is a great way into the dazzling array of different stories and genres and ideas that you are engaging with. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what attracts you about these kind of myths and fables and fairy tales to help you tell stories.
2: So a lot of the book I kind of wrote it in this very weird order like I didn't I didn't write it sort of as randomly or not randomly but as sort of scattered as the different genres appear. like I wrote sort of most of the memoir pieces in kind of one chunk and then I, I wrote the sort of more like historical research based material also kind of in one chunk. The bit about Bluebeard came early because I did know that I wanted fairy tales and myths to sort of enter into the book in some way for reasons that I think wasn't weren't entirely clear to me in the beginning of the process, as so much of writing is. But I think that fairy tales, you know, I think for me, the reason they work is that one of the trickiest parts about writing a book about domestic abuse is that abuse, abuse is a cliche. The way that abusers function is a cycle. And it's sort of by design. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying that as a way to like, Ooh, it's a cliche, but it's, you know, it's like by design, it's a cycle. By design, things repeat themselves in a certain pattern. And that's what makes it so effective. And so it's really hard, you know, when you're like, I want to write a book that's beautiful and interesting about a subject that is so repetitive. And that's like a really big, difficult thing to kind of try to tackle. And I think when I was writing the book and I was thinking about that problem, I was also thinking about the fact that, you know, fairy tales and folk tales are also stories that like kind of get told over and over and sort of change through time and location and like sort of, but have also have their own power in their sort of mythological backbone and it felt like in a way that material kind of gave me the context to help me work through the fact that I had pieces that like if you were again if you like know what you're looking for if you're like an expert on domestic violence or you're somebody who has experienced it like you if you know what you're looking for if you stripped away all the sort of details you're like ah yes okay now comes the love bombing now comes the this now comes the escalation now comes this you know sweet like there's like this way in which it functions and so yeah, they ended up actually sort of speaking, I think, to each other in this really interesting way.
1: It's really, yeah, it's interesting listening to you describe that, because when I was reading it, I felt this presence of these various scripts, right? Like, and the fairy tale as the kind of origin script of a particular dynamic. But then the way that the scripts show up that you look at gaslighting, you look at um, one of my favorite chapters, because I'm a Star Trek fan was where you, um, this one called has Five Lights. And I loved that, you know, where you look at, at Picard and his experience of also kind of being gaslit and being tortured psychologically. But I also thought the whole way through that you were engaging with the scripts of love and romance and desire as well, and how problematic they are, actually. And the fact that there is a kind of idealization in the culture of what can translate into toxicity in relationships from like starting from minor toxicity to the major toxicity of, of abuse, which is something different, evidently. Mm-hmm. But I wonder, do you, like, does that resonate with you? Do you feel like the cultural scripts we have for romance and desire are troubling sometimes?
2: Yeah, I mean, they, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I sort of, am a, I'm one of those people who, you know, because of this book, people ask me often, like, what do I think we should do? about like domestic violence and i'm like well ask an expert because i'm not an expert um but honestly for me i think if i have one suggestion is and i I feel like i say this a lot and people i'm not the only person to say this but especially in the u.s i mean i can't speak for other countries but you know our, our sex ed programs are really broken like across the u.s you know sexual education for young people is like very is very scattered and sometimes it's very good and comprehensive and more often it's pretty bad and more often than that it doesn't exist at all so I feel like that's a problem but I also feel like we don't just need sex ed we need like relationship education like I feel right. like it's helpful to like disrupt these scripts because yeah I mean because I'm not one of the people who's like you know oh the children are watching tv and they're getting bad ideas from it but we do media does create a narrative but if you don't counter that narrative. With real information, what are you supposed to do, right? So I feel like that's that's one thing that we really could do very actively, but I also feel like we do generally romanticize jealousy, uh, and we romanticize, I think, certain kinds of obsessive behavior, you know, and telling somebody that that conveys value onto them. And we also tell we don't give queer people narratives at all, like, or we really we really resist giving them narratives. We tell fat people that. They have no value, and we tell them that if they're if anyone likes them, they're just it's a lucky coincidence. I mean, there's lots of ways in which we created these scripts that I think are really broken because they're not being countered by anything meaningful. They're just sort of they sort of exist in the air, and people just know them to be true on some gut level, and yeah, and I think it, it does create this really like terrible sort of network of of bad ideas that you know, is like a part, a piece of how abusers are able to function because the sort of these societal scripts are doing a lot of the heavy lifting for them.
1: So this kind of domestic abuse was something that came up in um, in your short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties in the story Mothers, um, which I went back to and read again, having read in the dream house and wondered how much they related to one another, because I felt the, the, you, you, paint this incredibly vivid picture of this kitchen and this house and this edifice, right? In that short story. And I wondered if that influenced your desire to writing a memoir about that theme. And like, do you consider them closely related the book and the short story?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are two, I have two short stories that sort of explicitly deal with queer DV. Um, one of which is, or queer intimate partner violence. One of them is mothers and her body and other parties. And there's also another story called Blur, which is not, has not been collected into a book. I published it in Tin House, maybe, oh God, four years ago at this point. I don't even know. Um, it was like in a summer issue years ago. And both of those are stories, fictional stories, which do which use sort of speculative devices to sort of talk about queer DV. So in the case of mothers, it's this, this baby that allegedly these two women became pregnant with, and then is handed off to the protagonist. Um, And may or may not exist. And then in Blur, it's this young woman. It's sort of a riff on um, Shirley Jackson's story, The Tooth, which is one of my favorite short stories. And it's a woman who's driving on a highway to go visit her abusive girlfriend. And she stops to wash her face at a rest stop. And she puts her uh, glasses down. Um, And when she goes to pick them up again, they're gone. Um, And then soon a man shows up and tells her, let's walk there together. And so walks her down the highway. Um, and both of those are stories that, again, yeah, like you use these speculative devices to sort of go at these ideas. And something that I've discovered about myself as a writer in the last few years is that it's it seems that I need to write a thing – I need to write fiction about a thing before I can write nonfiction about a thing. Fiction sort of gives me this sort of space to, like, think – to sort of work out my ideas because I have ultimate freedom in fiction, right? Because, I mean, nonfiction – Obviously, you can do a lot of nonfiction, but one thing you can't do is just make shit up, right? You can't. <laughs> <So> <laughs> one with right? Well, exactly. So, like, one one has one hand tied behind one's back, and that in that sense. And so, you know, so an example of this that isn't about abuse is I have this essay that I wrote, um, "The Trash Heap Has Spoken," which is an essay about the fat body that I was trying to write for a very, very long time, and I was really struggling with it. time I would write an, a, a version of it, it was horrible. And when I, and then I I wrote her, you know, I finished writing Her Body and Other Parties and there's a story in there called Eight Bites. And it's a story about a woman who gets gastric bypass surgery and then is haunted by the ghost of the body that she has rejected. And it took me writing that story in which I had this like freedom to kind of do whatever I wanted and tell whatever story I wanted to then be able to sit down and be like, okay, I've now sorted out some ideas that I have about fatness and I can now write about them in essay form. And the same is true about the abuse. It took having two short stories, which like dealt sort of in this like speculative way with this topic, to then feel like I, I could go at it with with nonfiction. And I guess that's just my pattern. I mean, it's not a very efficient, efficient way to write, but <laughs> it's just the way that I write, as it turns out. It's so interesting
0: to hear you talk about that process, but also because reading this memoir... I say this as a compliment, it's not a traditional memoir, you know, it's not it it isn't something that happened, but that just reads like a straight novel all the way through it, it still feels really experimental and exciting and fictional. And I just, I wanted to ask you about structure. Um, because this is, of course, a, a story of your own experience, but it's also this amazing collection of different voices and genres and tropes, and we have a choose-your-own-adventure and Dreamhouse's Omen, Dreamhouse's Mrs. Dalloway. So um, it it almost feels like in the middle space between, even even if it's based solely on truth, it it does feel kind of in the middle space between fiction and nonfiction.
2: Yeah, I mean the stru- I mean the structural stuff. I mean, that was sort of the key to unlocking the project for me because I, I did try to sort of write it in a more straightforward way and failed over and over and over and was like really struggling to make make it work uh, in a way that meant something to me. And so I would write these pages and I would look at them and I remember <laughs> at some point writing like an essay and I used the phrase essay super loosely. <laughs> I wrote this like thing <laughs> that I wanted to submit to, I think it was Modern Love, it was Modern Love at the New York Times and this was like fairly soon after the um, I, I broke up with my ex and I showed it to this really dear friend of mine who's a really brilliant editor and she read it and she was so kind and she was like very gentle with me. And she, but she said, Carmen, like you're a beautiful writer. Like these sentences are beautiful. That's not your problem. Your problem is you don't seem like you're in the right mental place to be writing this. Like you seem too close to the material right now. Like I think you need to like kind of step back and like let yourself experience some your feelings (laughs) and then you can kind of return to this. Like you're already, she said, you're already a different person today when i'm talking to you on the phone than when i you sent me this a week ago you know so like you're just you're in a very active sort of place right now um so yeah so when i tried to do that it just wasn't working and it took me like many years of just sort of like thinking and writing and you know and then at some point like a revelation that i had about you know thinking about the story as like a gothic story or a haunted house story that i finally felt able to like Kind of go with the material and just you know it's one of those things where sometimes the, f- the correct form is the thing and then uh, as soon as I began to think of it that way the whole I mean it was a very ugly first draft but the whole thing like fell out of me and was what I eventually sold to wolf
1: That's really interesting because I also when I read the chapter "Dream Houses: Exercise in Style," where you describe
2: yeah, being yep. you know like <laughs>
1: fueled by creativity while you're in this really un unpleasant you know really emotionally awful situation in your relationship and you you open that chapter by saying you know you would have thought that I would have been um, creatively constipated essentially but actually you know you, you describe how you were full of energy and you talk about the fact that you were experimenting with fragmentation in your writing during that time and I wondered if that also influenced the way you wanted to tell the story or if there's some kind of parallel between replicating your state of mind at the time and telling the story years later because it, it feels so um, intimate actually to be with you telling the story in this way, which might come as a surprise to, you know, like people imagine the kind of intimacy of um, more traditionally structured narrative, but actually there's something in the fragmentation of this that is so kind of alive with you, I guess, or f- that was certainly how I experienced it.
2: Well, I feel like there's a real pleasure to, f- to feeling like you're in someone's brain, And I feel like that is an experience that you can have with art. (laughs) I remember, um, I don't know if either of you have ever been to the House on the Rock in Wisconsin. Are you you familiar? It's this extremely weird sort of piece of Americana. It's It's this museum and I use museum in a very loose way. So it's in Spring Green, Wisconsin. My mother grew up in Highland, which is a very small town, which is not too far away. So as a child, we went to this place many times. And it's, it was this this sort of eccentric rich man who just collected stuff. And the museum is like miles and miles long and it's just the weird shit he collected. And it's very hard to describe. Um, there's actually a scene in Neil Gaiman's American Gods in The House on the Rock, which feels very oh. accurate to me because <laughs> it, that is a book about America. Because I mean, it feels like a very American sort of thing. Sort of this very eccentric, bizarre, like sort of, Um, accumulation of stuff that doesn't have a lot of rhyme or reason. And so when I went to grad school, I was in Iowa and Iowa city is only a few hours away. And I took a friend and I took this friend who I love very dearly. Who's another writer. Who's a very sort of, um, I, knew, I know I don't use this in a derogatory way, but like she's a very sensitive person. Like she's just very sort of in tune to like other people and to and so we were going through the house on the rock, and about halfway through she had like a panic attack, and she was like sitting there, and she's like, I feel like I'm in someone's brain, and I can't handle it. And so this is all a very long way to say. I think that there's some kinds of art where you do feel like you have like entered into someone else's headspace in it with all of its eccentricities and its rooms and it's weird cluttered ephemera. It doesn't have the kind of like order and logic that I think some other kinds of work have. And I think that experience is very singular and unique. And I think that, I mean, I like it. I think it's a really good feeling I mean, it's scary obviously, but I think that sense of intuitive logic or dream logic, because you know that you're, you're this is not like something that's been kind of rigidly constructed, but like is sort of has sort of arrived organically as the interior of someone's thought process or someone's brain. I think it's like actually a really special experience. And it makes sense to me that you would feel, have that feeling with this book in the sense that some of the associations feel kind of random. And I can't explain to you. I mean, sometimes I could say like, oh, the logic of this thing or this thing. But a lot of that, I'm like, I, people ask me questions about why I wrote it or how. And I'm like, I don't know. I just did. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: was there anything that you really wanted to include like a genre or a story that you just couldn't fit in you know I'm always interested in what writers sure, what leave out as it. much as yeah, yeah as much as what they put in
2: <laughs> you know there was but I honestly couldn't tell you I mean I feel like nothing that I was like I have to put this in and they were like cut it out oh there was there was one thing that I did but which was kind of interesting which was so the, there's a chapter later called um, "The Queen and the Squid." It's like a fairy tale that I invented, and the reason that I wrote it is because I had wanted to include. So, <laughs> towards the end of my relationship with my ex, there were like lots of emails that I received, and later the from her, and many years later, someone I was talking to somebody and they called these emails "dying wizard" emails which made me laugh for about an hour without stopping. Um, (laughs) The idea that like a, a dying wizard is like firing off all their powers all at once and is like trying desperately to like do, you know, and it's sort of like pew, 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 pew. And like, as they like crumble to the floor. And so I was like, huh, you know, I feel like these emails, because these emails, they were so, they were so numerous. They were sort of florid and overwritten but very specific in their intentions. And I was like, I wonder what I could do with these emails. So I actually had this experiment where I broke apart, like I collected a bunch of the emails together into a Word document. I broke them apart by sentences. I alphabetized the sentences and then I put them all together in one text block. So you could see like, for example, all the sentences that began with I, of which there were many. You could mm-hmm. see like patterns in, in, in sort of logic and rhetoric. You know, certain things would repeat themselves. It was like a really interesting experiment and I I wanted to use it. I actually inserted it as like a footnote in like one of the later chapters. And my editor, bless him, was like, this is super interesting, but <laughs> um, there are like laws or there are like rules about um, cor- correspondence. So if I were to send you a physical letter, you would own the letter, but I would own the words in the letter. Like you wouldn't be able to just like publish a letter that I sent you. And I ended up writing this fairy tale instead, as a way of sort of getting at that same material.
1: Listening to you describe that process, it, it reminded me of, of how you open the book, where you talk about Sadia Hartman's concept of archival silence, and how, you know, who has the authority over creating an archive and who doesn't. And yeah, just listening to you describe that process with the emails and then thinking about the whole book as an entire text, it's kind of an archive of its own. And obviously, that's something that you're you're consciously doing with it. But what, what drew you to the idea of the archive and how sort of early in the process did that come to you?
2: So again, it's this is like you're seeing how the sausage is made. That, uh, that whole idea kind of actually came fairly late in the process, which is really interesting. I mean, I think on some level, I, I was always doing, thinking about the archive, but I was actually again fairly late in the process. I was maybe like a few weeks away from finishing the book. Um, I was at a residency in upstate New York, and my wife was back in Philadelphia. And she went out to um, dinner with a friend and met this friend's partner, who she had never met before. And this friend's partner just happens to have studied, among other things, archival sciences, like at in at, at school. And was like, and so Val was telling this person about, you know this whole process of what I was doing. And they were like, oh, has Carmen read Sadia Hartman? Has she read about has she read about the violence of the archive and the silence of the archive, archival silence? And Val was like, I don't know. I don't think so. And so the next day I'm just like working and I get this like incredible email from Val being like, hey, here's all these like things that this person sent me. Maybe we'll be useful for you. And it was like exactly the critical language that I've been looking for. So much of writing is so scary because there's so much you don't know. And I feel like the more you know, like it's like the more you you realize what you don't know, like the, the whole process is like, my God, like I'm gonna put this book out and then like people will be like, Oh, did you know that this book exists? Like or like the, like a thing, a thing that you think didn't exist actually exists. You know, there's a lot of like fear around like what you don't know, what you what you didn't find. And, I, and yeah, and so I was just, I feel like very lucky that I just got this. And of course that C.D. Hartman's scholarship, which ended up being very important to me. Like, I'm really grateful it exists. I'm really grateful there was like, that like this idea that I was having kind of on my own, that there was actually like a whole critical sort of framework that existed already in this sort of place of history and archival studies.
0: One of the things I really, really loved about this book was how self-aware it is of its own construction. It sort of has an ex, extra textual layer um, mm-hmm. where you make the reader very aware of some of your fears around even telling this story. Um, and and I, I felt that was a very like inviting and, and also important part of the book. But one of the things you talk about a lot is um, domestic violence between queer people. Part of the reason why you were so sort of worried about telling the story is you say at one point, the last thing queer women need is bad fucking PR. And, and I wonder if you can talk about that a bit, you know, like about that, that pull between the fears that you have around writing and, you know, the sort of need to tell the story and, and what you wanted to do with that.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was certainly with a thought that was on my mind. And I feel like, you know, I feel like you could are I mean, like the, the book, I think does exhibit. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but I think the book is a little, is in a way sort of defensive. It's like defensive driving, you know, like I was sort of writing it thinking very actively about like what could go wrong and how how people could, could misread and, you, you know, like what was happening because I was thinking so much about like the way that whenever like an individual group fucks up in some way that like the people, who, you know, a, a group of people, uh, you know, who have been stood on in some way by like a dominant group um the dominant group will like, jump all over that right and so mm-hmm. you know i do think there are like very serious problems about like you know addressing queer domestic violence within the queer community which of course does not like change anything about like queer rights or whatever but some people would use it that way and so yes yeah, so it was important to me to like sort of anticipate how people could misuse the book and like be sort of on the defensive, again, not in a bad way, but like be thinking very actively. And also because like, that's also really about thinking about like, where are the holes in my own logic? Like where, where is my book failing? You know? And I mean, it's also why like I wrote at the end, like, you know, I feel like you have to be aware of your own limitations. Like I was like, here's my, the, I'm I'm writing from this perspective and like, it's a very specific pers- perspective And like, what I'm hoping is that other books will exist about this that like tell other stories, you know, like how would the story be different if there was like a trans person writing it? Or how would the story be different if it was like a black woman writing it? You know, there's like all these ways in which like, you know, the story does not begin and end with me. And I think that's also a problem with like, any kind of person writing from like an oppressed perspective is that like people are like, oh, that's the one. It's sort of like how like, you know, in the United States, like we translate so little literature, like it's it's some, single digit percentage of literature released in the us every year is in translation which is you know already it's just a completely scandalous but it's like this problem where like if you're a like say a writer who's writing in like chinese like you'll go try to sell your book in the us and they'll be like oh we already have a chinese book for this year like we have the one yeah, and there's no yeah. space for a second one. And it's, this is true of like all kinds of writing where it's like, if you're like, I wrote, so like someone's like, you know, a black writer writes a memoir, some you know, some of his publishers will be like, well, I, there's already a black memoir this year, you know? So there's just like, there's ways in which like this gets used again. So you get thought of as sort of the singular thing and there's no room for like more than one of you. And so it was really important to me to say like, here is where I am, but also like, there's a lot of room and space around me for all kinds of other stories. I welcome them and I open my arms to them.
1: It's like one of the great shames of the publishing industry, I think, is that they, that things are still considered in those times, but it happens across all culture, doesn't it? It happens in TV and film just as much. I mean, you say what is placed in or left out of the archive is a political act, and that's obviously part of, of Hartman's whole philosophy around this as well. And do you consider this memoir as a political act?
2: I think. I, mean, I think all writing is political. I'm, I'm one of those, I'm one of those insufferable people. I'm like, everything is political, but it is. No, no, I mean, no, what, please.
1: Welcome, welcome. You, <laughs> <What>? We share <laughs> your point of view.
2: Oh, great. Well, I mean, yeah, like what you choose to write. I mean, the, and I think the thing that people, misunderstand about that phrase is they'll be like, well, but if you you can write things that aren't about politics. And it's like, yeah, but if you choose to write something that is apolitical, that is a political decision, you know? And like, if you being allowed to write, I mean, I think there's also like a sort of a thing That it also, you know, marginalized writers and artists, you know, people are like, we want you to write about your pain and your identity. And if you try to write a thing that isn't about that, like, we don't want it. So I feel like there's, yeah, of course, like, everything you write is political. All the choices I made in this book were political. I mean, the fact that my book exists and that, like, someone else's book does not exist. um, You know, that is political as well. You know, there's, like, all kinds of ways in which you could sort of read that.
0: We had a really interesting conversation with the Irish writer, Sinead Gleason. She wrote a (laughs) memoir. And a lot of the things that we're talking about now have made me think of that conversation. And one of the, one of the things we talked about is about how people think of memoir, writers of memoir as people who are just revealing everything about themselves. But actually it's a very, you know, it's a very selective process. And also there are lots of boundaries and also a lot of things about the writer that get left out. And it's, it's really an art to make it seem totally transparent and, mm-hmm. um, and I was, I was just thinking about that hearing you talk and I, I wanted to ask you more about boundaries for you as a writer. Um, you know, did you set yourself really clear boundaries when you set out to write this or was that something you really wanted to avoid? Or was that something that you had to, uh, you know, to think about later on in the process once you'd gotten everything out? Because it's such, you know, I, I feel like for a memoir, especially that's, that must be such a maybe not torturous process, but an important process um, when you're putting something from your life down on paper.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think certainly when when you write nonfiction, people have ways of reading it that, feel yeah, they feel like they know you. And that's that's true. And I, th- and I think that's true even of fiction. I think when, because again, if you're reading art where you feel like you're in someone's brain, I mean, is there anything more intimate than being inside someone's brain, right? And so that there's that sense of, of knowledge and knowing. I mean, I sort of did my best to sort of protect myself. I mean, I think in an ideal world, I would not have even had to have toured this book. I mean, if if I could have had anything I wanted with no consequences or sad emotions, I would have been like, I'm not going to tour this book. I've written it. It's done. And I'm I, that's yeah. it. And of course, I didn't do that because not only was I like, you know, I do want this book to sell, but also like... You know, my publisher worked very hard on it and I want to, you know, do right by them and do right by everybody. There were just a lot of people who put a lot of work into this book. And I sort of – my plan is that when the sort of run of publicity for this book is over, I'm never going to talk about it again. Because for me, it is it is hard to talk about. I don't like it. I don't like thinking about it. I don't like talking about it. I don't like reading from it. Um And I, yeah, I sort of feel like, and I feel bad because it's like, as if it's like a child that I don't like, you know, Um, (laughs) but I'm like, you caused me a lot of sadness. And I just, I simply, I would simply rather not to, you know, I'd rather talk about anything else. There's certain kinds of pain that I just don't want to have to deal with anymore
0: that's completely understandable. And I was thinking about that, even preparing questions for you today. So I'm really grateful that you've come to speak to us about it. Thank you so much for talking to us today and sharing, sharing so much about your process and your work and, um, and writing this wonderful book. So thank you, Carmen.
2: Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is Behind Closed Doors. In the Dream House is about domestic abuse, something that is often hidden behind closed doors, and something that was even more hidden in Carmen's circumstance because it happened in a lesbian couple. Today, we wanted to talk about the books that document domestic things that we don't always see, but also the literature that has attempted to draw out stories left out of history, those silences in the archive that we talked about with Carmen. So I think let's start with perhaps the most literal interpretation of literature that looks behind closed doors, books that show a domestic situation that is not obvious from the outside or to outsiders. Why don't we start with nonfiction, especially because Carmen's book is a memoir, There are plenty of important memoirs and other books that do look at situations that happen behind closed doors, aren't there?
1: Yeah, loads. And I mean, it's one of the traditions of the of the genre is throwing open the the doors that have previously been locked. Right. Um, And it's interesting because there are there are several different ways into that. So one is the memoir of the public figure who is someone that, you know, the culture feels like they know because they've seen them on television all the time or, you know, in the movies, whatever they might be, a politician who then throws the doors open, like all, I mean, the endless politicians memoirs, where they take you behind the red curtain and all that nonsense. I, I have to say, I've actually never read a politician's memoir. No <laughs> and I'm quite happy with that fact. <laughs> but I read um, Becoming. Oh, but, did you? Yeah, I would be yeah. interested to read Becoming. I liked that. Did you feel like it took you behind the closed doors of Michelle Obama's lifestyle?
0: A little bit. I don't think that was really, what was nice was that actually wasn't what it was about. I think it was, it was a much larger story about race and inequality in America and what it takes to succeed and, um, and success against the odds, but just how difficult and lucky she was in her life and how much of a struggle it still is.
1: Right. Yeah. So definitely not the kind of standard political or celebrity exposé no. kind of no. thing no i mean and w- what would we expect from michelle obama not that <laughs> so yeah but i mean uh, things that came to mind were um actually frida kahlo's diaries as another way behind the doors of a public figure because she's obviously she was an artist who was known very much for her paintings but I I don't actually know at what point in her life or whether it was posthumous they were published, but a friend of mine bought me a book of her, her diary years ago and it's a facsimile of her diary page by page and she painted hugely in them and it's you know very, very kind of visual and colourful, but there's text as well and it very much takes you into her psyche in that kind of behind the, behind the closed doors of the person and especially with a figure like Carlo whose paintings seem to let you into very personal experiences like abortion and her experience of physical disability as a result of the accident she had when she was young. You feel like you know the inner workings of the artist and then you see this other document that, you know, it's not quite memoir, it's actually the document of her private diary and it feels incredibly intimate. Another book that came to mind was Viv Albertine's book To Throw Away Unopened, which we spoke to her about several years ago now where again it was she's was taking us behind the door of her relationship with her mother, but as her mother is dying, and it made me think about how when someone reaches the end of their life, there things can come to light that make you reevaluate who they were and make you reevaluate your relationship with them, which is partly what's happening in that memoir. Yeah, what yeah. about you? Were there anything that came to mind?
0: Well the thing that immediately came to mind which I think illustrates this theme perfectly is the graphic memoir by Alison Bechdel Fun home, which is you know just a, an outstanding thing to read in its own right but really is about the idea of a home and what happens when the thing that the things that go on in that home aren't happy and it really opened my eyes to what memoirs can do and the stories that they can tell and how they can tell those stories um and i would just recommend anyone read it
1: yeah it's phenomenal you introduced me
0: to that book actually oh yeah that makes me happy let's talk about fiction which is something we love to do on the show and how it can show us things behind closed doors i mean you could even say that all fiction is
1: taking us behind closed doors couldn't you carrie
0: you really could say that, and it does tend to happen to us when we pick themes on the show. They just get too big for us immediately. But let's try <laughs> to restrict ourselves for the interest of our listeners, if nothing else. Um, and I thought a place to start would be the idea of domestic fiction, which, of course, is an incredibly loaded term, became a, a word or a term used to describe books written for women um, about women during the 19th century. I mean, I think one great example of this is, is Little, Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. But it's come to represent a lot more and is still a term that's used today, still, I think, with quite gendered associations. But I mean, there are so many writers today, men and women who are writing books about the home aren't they it's kind of a ridiculous thing when you start to break it down
1: it is I guess because it's a perfect it's a perfect contained ecosystem from within which you can get into characterization and plot and everything like that and it's something that I find myself very resistant to the idea of because of how gendered it is and because of its history but actually there are some really fascinating writers kind of working in that space today like I think you could say that Rachel Cusk the writing that she does I would ha- I would never categorize it as domestic fiction but you know she is writing about the ecosystem of a family often and th- there's something there Elena Ferrante as well Tessa Hadley Marilyn Robinson you know really writers who you wouldn't associate with the kind of reactionary ideas that I find impossible to avoid when thinking about books like Little Women
0: you know yeah <laughs> yeah exactly I mean Edward St Aubyn you could argue that Ian e. Forrester was writing domestic fiction. So it does sort of crumble in your hands when you when you start to interrogate that term. Because so much of our lives are domestic. And the house does and the family creates this unit that does stand apart from the outside world and, yeah. and does create its own language that are difficult to understand unless unless you're a part of that family, which is something that fiction can make you feel. Like.
1: Yeah, exactly. When I was researching this show, though, I stumbled into this whole other category that I'd never heard of before, which is domestic thriller. <laughs> um,
0: oh, I, yeah, I know. I mean, I know about that. You would know
1: from the industry, yeah. right? But it's, it's a, a sub-genre of crime fiction in the style of a psychological thriller that focuses on interpersonal relationships. Um, and then the little blurb I, I found was that it might be secrets between a married couple or between relatives. What's important is that the driving force of the story lies in domestic disturbances, secrets, and tensions. So obviously in that kind of writing, the the home ecosystem becomes monstrous and disrupted. And one of the examples given was Big Little Lies by Leanne Moriarty, which I've not read, but I did watch the TV show. Um and it's very compelling, right? I mean, it's really designed to keep you hooked in. And the other one is Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn, which was obviously a huge success. And I think because the domestic space is something that we, you know, largely all have in common, that there, it, it is a good setting if you want to keep people very um, compelled and if you want it to be easy for your reader to have identification with the setup then it's yeah. going to be, it's it's likely to have very broad appeal, right? Which is what that kind of fiction is really looking for as well.
0: Yeah, the domination in the liter- like literature space of domestic thrillers and psychological suspense has been fascinating to me. Um, and it's interesting that you bring that up too, because that is still perceived as fiction written by women for women. So in some ways... We haven't changed. Um, it's just still,
1: Louisa May fucking Alcott. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I mean, Louisa not, May Alcott I, 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 on whiskey.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think some of those books are legitimately great. Um, little plot engines. So I'm not. It's not to say that the books are bad, but just that we can't seem to get out of this mindset that that books about women doing things in houses are are a very particular kind of book for a very particular kind of readership. Yeah,
1: which is tricky. And my problem with a lot of those books, I agree, they can be phenomenal plot engines but they tend to reinforce uh gender stereotypes that I would like to see us moving away from in the mainstream as well as on the sidelines you know
0: yeah fair enough should we talk about books that kind of specifically look at homes that are not what they seem
1: absolutely top of my list the stepford wives by ira levin which is a complete you know um flipping on its head caustic look at the domestic setting and I, I mean, could you, would you not call that a domestic thriller? <laughs> could you? Um,
0: Maybe it feels, it feels kind of science fiction-y to me. Yeah,
1: I guess it is more science fiction-y. If you haven't read it, it is an absolutely banging read. Um And obviously there have been a couple of films made of it, but I, I really would recommend the book because it's so creepy and so well-crafted. Um, but then the other one I was thinking of was obviously *Jekyll and Hyde* by Robert Louis Stevenson, where the house not only is the man—the man has a, a a part of himself behind closed doors—but also in the house there's this basement laboratory that's hidden to everyone who visits. And so that idea of of the the domestic space not being what it seems, and it made me think of times in my own life where like my house has been a mess, and someone's come round, and I've just shoved all my crap in <laughs> like in the yeah. other room, and um. Everyone lives like that on some, yeah. in some small way at some time, whether it's your public facing self and your private facing self and the discrepancies between them. So I think that dynamic creates a really um, rich space for plots to grow from. I mean, the great yeah. Gatsby as well, right? When you say like anyone, any anytime you have a character where there's an edifice that they're having to prop up um, of their personality, you can do some really interesting work where you scoot around the back and see the emptiness that's really there, for example.
0: Totally. And you talking about the Stepford Wives made me think of horror and crime genres, um, things that Carmen Marie Machado engages with as well, as these really amazing ways of sort of stretching those things that we all feel in our everyday lives to to these fantastical ends. And I think that's one of the real the appeals of those genres and also why we feel that they're so good at showing us what happens behind closed doors um I was thinking of Sarah Waters book The Little Stranger ghost stories oh, yeah. are all about what goes on behind closed doors aren't right they? and the uncanny um, the
1: uncanny is it yes the, yeah the familiar well, becoming monstrous
0: exactly or Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier which is Course, all about a house and a haunting, and things not being what they seem, and uncanniness, and the sort of unease of of something not being what it's meant to be. And I think that the power of that, you know, the home, which is something that's so prioritized above all else in many ways by our society, but which we all know to often contain things that are uncomfortable or bad or wrong
1: right well it made me think of also Jane Eyre you know Mr. Rochester with uh, his Bertha in the attic and then the Wide Sargasso Sea the phenomenal book that Jean Reese wrote which tells the story of Bertha Rochester and actually takes her out from behind the closed door in Jane Eyre and gives her life and I love that too that that can happen in the, in the space of fiction and, and imagined worlds that writers can come and physically blow open the doors that other writers closed on particular characters I think that's a really exciting place to be
0: and then I think we should just talk about novels about relationships because I think that is definitely where closed doors are opened aren't they
1: big time and also that relates back to what's interesting about a lot of memoirs isn't it it's the same territory where we want to see what's really going on in a relationship because of course in reality there are very few relationships that we get the full hit of right so yeah I was thinking about call me by your name by Andre Aciman which is it's kind of a brilliant document of how relationships can exist in their very specific place and time and then be sidelined to a different kind of reality that's chosen for a lot of reasons that are maybe more in relation to external expectations than internal desires and needs Um, which is obviously a a classic queer narrative when you're looking at um, whether a person is able to come out of the closet and live openly in their queerness or whether the demands of the society around them means they can't Um, but it's also a book that's getting into ideas of bisexuality and asking questions about that, which I think is also very interesting. Um, But I also was thinking of Sadie Smith. I think she's so, so good at taking her reader behind the doors of always, in one book, so many different kinds of people because her books are so heavily populated and she writes across spectrums of race and class and I think is very, very good at rendering in real technicolor the experiences of a working class woman, a uh, posh white man, you know, the whole kind of spectrum of people. Um, and so when I read her books, I do often feel like she's just like flinging open this door and then flinging
0: open that door. And then we go and we have a look
1: around and then we get out again, you know?
0: Um, yeah, I totally agree. The other books I was thinking about, books about marriages, basically, which I think are fun to read, especially once you get married. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff, Department of Speculation by Jenny Offal, um, who we just had on the show, An American Marriage by Tayari Jones. You know, the, I I think long relationships and all the, the trials and tribulations of of such are are fascinating fodder for fiction and as you say, an excellent way to to really get inside, to really understand the dynamic and from both sides. Because if you think about it in a relationship, you actually only know your side of the story. Isn't Mm -hmm. it amazing that fiction can tell us both sides of the story?
1: Isn't it amazing that other people have their own interiority? (laughs)
0: It astounds me. It's incredible that
1: they exist outside of (laughs) your own psyche. Really? (laughs) (laughs) No, I know it's amazing that fiction can, can give both sides of the story. And that's why, You know, well-written fiction is such a joy to read and why badly written fiction is so disappointing because it promises so much right the medium promises so much and if it fails on that delivery it can be crushing so true (laughs) Um, so let's
0: let's talk more generally about books that look behind closed doors which I think we were also thinking can be defined as books that break open histories that tell stories that have been suppressed or hidden
1: Yeah, so important. The idea of querying the archive, which is, you know, I think the work of every generation, one of the things that every generation needs to do is question the establishment of the generation that came before. And that means looking at, as Carmen writes about so brilliantly in her memoir, you know, asking questions about the archive, asking questions about what's kept in and what's left out. And, you know, writers can write into the spaces left by those holes and and that's what's exciting about getting a, a a wider scope in the history of literature i think and seeing how these conversations are changing and moving forward i mean i was thinking a lot of poets who do that and how contemporary poetry scholarship you'll read like i wrote my master's thesis on a spanish poet called luis cernuda and um he was gay and his poetry was written in an ambiguous enough way that he wouldn't be persecuted for what he was writing about, but so much of the scholarship looking back was about digging through his work and trying to understand you know the messages that he left there, so things like that, you know I think I think that's where academic scholarship can play a really important role as well um, Definitely. yeah,
0: and of course, histories that tell the stories that have been suppressed or left out by governments, by people, by whiteness, and I think that is a really rich vein of nonfiction publishing right now. Um, I was thinking of, you know, Hidden Figures by Margot Lee Shetterly about the African American women who who helped put rockets into space. Books like Inglorious Empire, which is the real history of what the British did to India, basically. So thinking about colonialism and and recontextualizing colonialism, that's by an author called Shashi Tharoor.
1: Yeah, and when you have had a historical education that's basically based on work history books written by white men who were playing to the agenda the most vital thing we can do is actually read books that recast that whole education in the light that it needs to be cast in which is the light of truth right I mean I, I want to read history books by women and people of color because I don't trust the narrative that I was brought up kind of believing there's a great book called Ain't There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack by Paul Gilroy which I haven't read yet but it sounds like it's doing the same kind of work. But I was also thinking about gentler books, I suppose, like Square Haunting by Francesca Wade, which I also haven't read yet, but it's about, it's a kind of another way of looking at some of the women who are part of the Bloomsbury group, group, some of whom are more famous than others. And just, again, continuing to do the work of looking back and filling in the gaps, looking back and filling in the gaps. I sometimes feel like it's like stitching a quilt (laughs) and going back and catching the dropped, the dropped, stitches. And it's never done. You know, it really is that that is work that is never done.
0: Should we talk about our favorite books that look behind closed doors? Yes,
1: What's we your- should. Well, I, I actually found it quite hard to choose one. Um But I'm going to go with The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion, which was written in the immediate aftermath of her husband's very sudden death, when her 39 year old daughter also became critically ill, and eventually also died. And she wrote this book in that year, it ended up being published, I think, pretty much to the day on the anniversary of his death. And it's an incredible in real time examination of her experience of grief, but especially focuses on the more extreme parts of it, which kind of approach insanity. And she couldn't find much existing literature about that titular kind of magical thinking that accompanies these really extreme um, forms of emotion. So it's a book that takes you behind the closed doors of one of the most universal experiences that a lot of cultures are still very squeamish to get into properly which is grief we will all lose people it's an absolute certain fact of being a human being and so it was a very successful and surprising book for what it was showing people I think people when it came out just went oh wait no one told me (laughs) you know like we really didn't know
0: that's an extraordinary book. Oh, such an extraordinary book. I go back to it often, actually. Yeah, the clarity of her thought is just always astounding. I think Joan Didion. Well, my uh, my pick is a book called "We Have Always Lived in the Castle" by Shirley Jackson. Have you such read a it? great book. I have. It's yeah, slamming. Yeah, yeah, and and it gets back to what I was thinking about in terms of ghost stories and horror and and those genres being really great at thinking about the logical extremes of what happens when things are not what they seem behind closed doors and in houses. So I think Shirley Jackson is just the queen of a certain kind of investigation of what happens behind closed doors, the dark and creepy things that we find when we look behind the surface of a house or a family or a community. And this novel is no exception. And I think it's considered by many to be her masterpiece. I haven't read her entire oeuvre (laughs) (laughs) That's <laughs> my history of art teacher would pronounce it. Carol oh, right. Shout out. Uh, but it's about two sisters living in a large crumbling mansion with their uncle after a tragedy in which the rest of their family have died. And we, we learn slowly that they were all poisoned by arsenic in the sugar at this dinner that they were having together. And it's just, it's a masterpiece of tension. And there's just this amazing reveal at the end, which I will obviously not give away. But it's...
1: Yeah, it's phenomenal. It is absolutely phenomenal.
0: This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and also Carmen Maria Machado to give our monthly book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? I would love to start. And the book I'm recommending this month actually feels like a really good
1: partner for your work, Carmen. It's The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter, (laughs) which was, yeah, so (laughs) fabulous. First published in 1979. And I, I have to admit, I read several stories from it in my late teens and I liked them. I didn't really get them and I think at that stage it was because I was more interested in reading like you know bullshit heavily intellectual books that would convince people i.e men to take me seriously and I completely (laughs) misunderstood the power of Carter Um, but Mm -hmm. I've gone back to it lately for something I'm working on and I it's just I'm enjoying it so much. I love how she uses traditional fairy tales as the basis to write entirely new ones you know like she has a story called the tiger's bride which uses the beauty and the beast as its jumping off point but Mm. is actually something completely different and it opens with the line my father lost me to the beast at cards which i love um but she basically uses the framework of the fairy tale as a technology for exploring how different things could be and it's kind of she enters the realm of what we could think of as a kind of speculative science fiction and they're incredibly radical and obviously very feminist stories but the thing I love about them probably above everything is that they truly believe that human beings are capable of change there's so much about metamorphosis in them Um, and I also love the fact that she really questions the supposed or apparent virtue of things like passivity and goodness you know they pulse with this sexuality and the texture she writes in is incredibly rich and incredibly sensual, and just it's fabulous. And I, I would urge anyone who, who came across them at a different point in their life and, and maybe wasn't certain to just go back and let her take you somewhere else. It's just mm. great.
2: Oh, I second and third and fourth that that book is so special. I mean, her, all her work is really interesting, but. That book is so incredible. And yeah, I feel like if you're any kind of writer writing any kind of speculative work or anything dealing with fairy tales or any kind of feminist work, she's such an essential text. It's such a great book. Yeah, I have
0: never read any Angela Carter.
2: (gasps) Oh, let 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 us change your life. I know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Should I start with The Bloody Chamber? Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yep.
0: Okay, great. Carmen, could we have your recommendation, please?
2: Yes, so the book I'm recommending is actually one that I just read. It's coming out, I think, later this year. It's called Milkfed by Melissa Broder. So she's written. I love yeah. Melissa
1: Broder. Yeah, so oh, she wrote the,
2: Pis- the Pisces, and she wrote this other book called So Sad Today, and she's really brilliant and lovely. And Milkfed is a story about a a woman. Um, it's a sort of you know she's sort of working at this sort of rough job and she's got really severe eating disorder and she meets this like really sort of beautiful fat woman. And it's just this really sexy, it's probably the sexiest book I've read all year. And it's like very sexy and very beautiful. And I think very visceral writing about the body and about food and about appetites and it's just it's a really really incredible book and I was really grateful to get to read an early copy
1: that's so exciting I love the Pisces and I recommended it very breathily on this show uh whenever it came out a couple of years ago I think um so that sounds right up my street she's a very sexy writer she really she is. she really gets into it beautifully I think
2: she does I was I'm not gonna lie I was extremely turned on reading this book it was like <laughs> extreme I was like yanking on my collar I was like oh I am distracted <laughs> by this. Then- <laughs> how sexy this book is, which is great, it's a great feeling. I think all I think a yeah. lot more books should be that sexy. So I
0: agree. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> that's the best recommendation. and also under lockdown, that's like what we all need isn't it? I agree
2: Well, yeah, unless unless it, it will just create in you a desire for a thing you cannot have if that yeah. is your situation. Yeah, <laughs> so fair, I guess that fair. could be like a very <laughs> stressful thing.
0: Well, I am going to recommend a very different novel called Hurricane Season by the Mexican writer Fernanda Melkor, which was translated into English by Sophie Hughes. And it is a story about the death of a woman who is known only as the witch in a Mexican village called La Matosa. The narrative follows different characters in the village connected to the witch. They're all kind of unreliable narrators. And it becomes this kind of group portrait of people trapped by poverty, masculinity, superstition, and violence, but it's also this kind of propulsive Story about what actually happened to to this woman who is an outcast but sort of a magician in the village, um, both respected and feared. And I have to say, when I picked this up, a, a bunch of people had recommended it to me, and I at first was a little intimidated by the style. There are no paragraph breaks for the entire book, and they are incredibly long sentences, and it is this kind of torrential writing, um, but. It's, it's one of those things where as soon as you kind of crack the voice, you really can't stop reading it. And it's totally hypnotic, totally electrifying reading experience. It reminded me a little bit of when I first read Absalom Absalom by William Faulkner. It has that same sort of oh, compulsive wow. voice. And it does feel like this furious bolt of lightning. I mean, it's, inc- it's an incredibly angry book about inequality, you know, toxic masculinity, but it feels feels like nothing I've read recently and I would really recommend it
1: it sounds brilliant yeah
0: that's all the time we have for today thanks to our interviewee Carmen Maria Machado and to Eddie Knight for editing and music
1: Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Lit Friction. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. We love to hear from you.
0: We'll be back in a week with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.